the UK is in a moment of crisis and mainstream economics is failing to respond. Many of the challenges we face today, from the cost of living crisis to climate breakdown, are the legacies of a deeper and darker history that forms the very bedrock of our modern economic system. In Boomerang, a new documentary film from Open Democracy, academic and author Kojo Karam visits the city of Liverpool to explore how decisions of decades past are breaking Britain today, and how an honest reckoning with the legacies of empire can help us build an economy that works for all. Boomerang features legendary footballer John Barnes, academic and writer Dahlia Gabriel, and Labour MP Clive Lewis. The premiere, followed by a Q&A, is on November 8th at 6.30pm at the Art House Cinema in Crouch End, London. You can get your tickets today by going to Eventbrite and searching Boomerang, Empire and Britain's Economy. Liverpool, a proud city, a home of industry, the Beatles, football. Right now, this city is facing a harsh winter. Across the UK, ordinary people are bearing the brunt of a catastrophic drop in living standards. As the effects of the system buy harder, many people are asking how we arrived at this point. Questions of Britain's past. Questions about how this country was formed. For whom is our economy designed to work? And what exactly was the purpose of our 400-year empire? Join me, Kojo Karam, to examine how decisions of decades past are breaking Britain today. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Nagesh Bagjogli. We talked about the ongoing protests in Iran, which erupted in mid-September, following the killing of the 22-year-old Masra Amini by officers of the so-called Guidance Patrol. We talked about why Amini's death has sparked such wide-scale opposition to the Iranian regime, and about the class composition and geographical spread of the protests. We went on to talk about how the regime is seeking to portray the protest movement as being instigated by foreign powers. And finally, we talked about how the left should respond to those who seek to weaponize the cause of women's rights in Iran to justify Islamophobic politics or to advance geopolitical objectives. Nagesh Bagjogli is assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Advanced International Studies. She is the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Her writing has appeared in Jacobin, the New York Times, and The Guardian, amongst many other venues. In our interview today, we discussed her article in Vanity Fair, titled Woman, Life, Freedom, Iran's Protests are a Rebellion for Bodily Autonomy. 
The immediate cause of the ongoing protests in Iran was, of course, the killing of the 22-year-old Masa Amini in Tehran on, on September 16 by officers of the so-called guidance patrol or morality police who enforce uh, the strict dress codes and norms in the country. According to Amnesty International, around 150 people, many of them minors, have since been killed by the security forces, though other sources suggest higher figures. And just yesterday, it was reported that the 16-year-old Asra Panahi was beaten to death for refusing to sing a pro-regime anthem at her school in Ardabil in the northwest of the country. Could you talk a bit about the immediate background to the protests and their origin in the Kurdish province of the country following Amini's funeral after her body was returned to her home city? Sure. So... um... Gina Amini, so her real name, her Kurdish name is Gina, but because the reporters who reported on her going into a coma and in the hospital in Tehran were going off of her registered name, the hashtag that began in Iran was hashtag Masa Amini because you know, in Iran, you can't register, especially a lot of ethnic minority names. And so what happened was that she was visiting Tehran with her family from Saqqa, town in, in the Kurdish region of the country. And she gets caught up by the morality police. They take her in and she ends up collapsing and going into a coma. The state's official response is that she had pre-existing conditions, but uh, eyewitness reports and folks who were there say that she was beaten uh, in the head which caused her to collapse and go into the coma. Now, the hashtag went viral in Iran when the picture of her being led away from the station and going into the hospital on the gurney. When the reporter posted that image online on Instagram, that is when this hashtag Masa Amini started to go viral in Iran when she was in a coma. And then a few days later, she dies. And another journalist follows her body back to her funeral in her hometown of Sapas. And it's at that funeral where the Kurdish slogan of woman life freedom gets called out at the funeral and women there begin to take off their veils. That gets captured on cell phone camera, it gets posted online, and then it goes completely viral. And women and young people in in the Kurdish regions of the country begin to protest. Um, And then this begins to spill out to the rest of the country and women life freedom becomes the rallying cry. Now the, the background to that slogan goes back to the late 1970s among the Kurds in Turkey, where that slogan gets originated. And then it comes back into sort of today's generations um, in the 2014-15 era among Syrian Kurdish women who are fighting against ISIS. So it becomes, it's it, it takes on this militant feminist um, uh, sort of a militant feminist um, take on it in in a more contemporary sense for today's generation during that time. And then that then gets shouted out at Masa Amini Gina's funeral in Iran. And then that slogan becomes this national rallying cry for this uprising. And at the beginning, women especially are coming out onto the streets and taking off their compulsory hijab and are burning it and are sort of manifesting their uh, protest in that way. The protests have now gone on for four weeks going into their fifth week. And as women life freedom continues to be the central slogan of the protest, but also alongside it are a lot of calls for the downfall of 
this current Supreme Leader Khamenei, as well as moving past the Islamic Republic and the creation of a new political system. But yet, nonetheless, around all of that is still very much the crux of this continues to be the slogan that's unified folks around the country as women, life, freedom, and women are showing up outside in the streets and in schools without their veil on. So it's also morphed into a daily symbol of, of civil disobedience. And in terms of the geographical distribution of, of, of the protests, do you see it now as being very much throughout the country? Are there certain areas where it's still concentrated and areas which are which are quieter? Because, of course, the authorities have sought to pin the blame on, you know, so-called separatists and, and suggested that this is a protest that's been fostered on the borders of, of Iran and, and supported by outside powers, of course, the US, Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. Right. So the state has securitized regions across the borders in Iran for many years now. As you were mentioning, there's also um, there's been a history of, of other powers attempting to use these regions as well for their own purposes. But yet, nonetheless, the uprisings that have happened in the Kurdish regions continue very much. There was also a, a big event that happened in Baluchistan and the Baluch region of the country, another border region of the country, another area with ethnic minorities in which the community was extremely mad that a teenage girl had been raped at the hands of a security officer uh, tied to the state there. And those protests, the state met with heavy, heavy fire and as well as just a lot of violence that has killed upwards of 60 people. So then the slogans in the rest of the country began from from Kurdistan to Baluchistan, we are all Iranians. So that the population is attempting to take away this narrative of the border regions and ethnic minorities in those regions being a national security threat and are instead attempting to create sort of a, a language and a discourse of solidarity around the different ethnic minorities in Iran. Now, having said that, the state will continue to portray this as a question of separatism and as a question of uh, a color revolution. Uh, th that's the narrative that they've taken. But the reality on the ground is that, first of all, the women's movements in Iran, the various iterations of it, have been very long-standing and have been the biggest thorn in the side of the Islamic Republic for the past 40 years. So this is not unprecedented. Also, the protests against the compulsory hijab are also not unprecedented. Women began to take off their veils in forms of civil disobedience and silent protests from 2017 onwards, as well as, you know, the fights that they had for changing various different kinds of misogynistic laws that exist in the country around inheritance, around custody, around lots of different issues issues. So the state's narrative around this really falls flat because these are issues that women and young people in Iran have been fighting over, not even just in outward protests like we see on the streets today, but also in everyday forms of resistance. So what we're seeing on the streets is a manifestation of a collective action of the way that people in Iran, especially women and young people, have been every day resisting these different kinds of laws and restrictions put on them and their bodies and the way that they can come out onto the streets by pushing their veil back all of these years, making their overcoats shorter and shorter. So society has moved in a direction to push past these laws for a long time. But this was like a trigger. This was like someone lit the fuse. The, the death of Amini was 
she was so ordinary in many ways, right? Even the pictures and the video of her from when she was taken in, her veil was extremely ordinary and nothing that should have caught the attention of the morality police at all, especially given norms of veiling in Iran. But that's one of the reasons it has angered people so much is that there is no rhyme or reason and that people can get caught up at any point by these police forces, especially under these conservative governments that have that is now in power under Daisy. And so people are pushing back against that. So the guidance patrol and so on, I mean, they, they effectively have license to, to harass women, regardless of what the actual rules are. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. The rules are, they're so arbitrarily in place. You know, they're so arbitrarily practiced. And these morality police are, yes, veiling of women is, is sort of one of their main things, but also they can harass young boys for, um, uh, you know, at some point they were harassing them for wearing too tight jeans when skinny jeans were more and then, or like the way that they would gel their hair. So they're given the green light to harass. And it's an everyday, it's an everyday occurrence. So people are extremely pissed off about this police force in general. And then to have it be reinforced by the current president and his administration, who was really, they really come from the conservative religious parts of the establishment. They have made this more of an issue over the past year that he's been in office and, and it's angering people more. And then this is also all coming on top of the fact of over five, six years of maximum pressure sanctions, meaning that the economy is, is doing really badly. People, especially everyday people, are suffering very high inflation. On top of that, we've had two and a half years of COVID restrictions, just like everywhere else in the world. So people are really not only just tired, but also angry at their systems for failing them and failing to protect them in these public health crises. It's a combination of all of these things together, but really goes at the heart of the restrictions of the Islamic Republic on the bodies of women, queer people, and young people, because that is the most visible form of policing that they do. How do you explain the regime's move towards greater repression in, in this area? For instance, President Ibrahim Raisi instituted this new national hijab and, and chastity day. Uh, why are they making these moves to uh, clamp down, you know, that preceded the protests? Okay, so... The Islamic Republic has been closing off avenues of protest and change in Iran over the past two decades. When the reformists came into power in the mid-1990s with the election of Mohammad Khatami, overwhelmingly voted in by women and young people. At that time, women and young people saw that the way to influence the system was working towards reform and working within the system of electoral politics. And so in election after election, they would vote in reformist candidates. As the Supreme Leader and conservative forces around him began to, they saw that as a direct threat. In many ways, it was a direct threat to the Supreme Leader. Why? Because he comes from a much more traditionalist, conservative background himself. He also, when he became Supreme Leader at when uh, Ayatollah Khomeini died in the late 1980s, first of all, the successor was supposed to be someone else. I'm not going to get into all of the details of that history. But what's important to note here is that the current Supreme Leader did not have a high status as a cleric. He was not an Ayatollah. They sort of made him one very, very quickly in order for him to be able to take this. So he doesn't have a lot of legitimacy within the clerical establishment. He is not a charismatic person. He understood also that he didn't have the legitimacy of his predecessor. So 
one of his ways of maintaining power has been to try to cultivate the religious conservative sectors of society, and especially those that are tied into the paramilitary and military apparatus of the, of the state. That has been his concentration and where he's poured most of his resources and the resources of his office the past 30 years. So when the reformist movement came about in the mid-1990s, really brought about by women and young people at that time, that movement was a movement to open up society, to reform it, to take it away from these directions that Khamenei and those around him were trying to. He saw that as a direct threat to him, so he began to really clamp down with folks within the military establishment on his side on these reformist politicians and reformist figures and journalists and and all of that. So then Ahmadinejad becomes president. People react really strongly against that. The 2009 uprisings happen uh, in relation to the election there. Again, people come out in support of reformists that they think were that had been cheated out of taking over the presidency. And then the reformists and young people come again together to form a coalition with the moderates to elect in Rouhani, who was the previous president. But because of various things, one, given the fact that Rouhani himself was very much a moderate and not a reformist. So he doesn't deliver on a lot of the promises he made to these sectors of society who were voting for him. But also he put all of his eggs in the basket of the JCPOA and in signing a deal with the West in order to get sanctions relief. That happens. There's sanctions relief for about a year and a half to two years. Then Trump pulls out of the deal and then imposes even more sanctions on Iran. So Iran is, is now the most sanctioned country in the world. And the economic situation got really bad and people became really angry about putting all of their hopes and aspirations into a deal with the West. And then the West sort of pulls out and reacts in this way. And at the same time, the conservative forces who were not in formal elected power at that time, have the levers of much of the media apparatus in the country. And so they began to really hammer the moderates and the reformists. And their entire line became, they've sold out the country, they've made our economic situation worse, we need to come into power because we need to expand the relations we have with other parts of the world that are not the West. And this sort of becomes what people talk about, about Iran's turn to the East, of having closer relationships with Russia and China. So that then the political situation that gets set up in the lead up to the June 2021 presidential election is that in essence, the conservative elements of society pretty much fix that election so that no one else could win but Raisi. And Raisi is a very, you know, he doesn't have a lot of popularity in, in the population. He attempts to be like a populist like Ahmadinejad was, but he's not, he doesn't even do that very well. So he's not extremely charismatic. He doesn't really have a, a huge base behind him. And so his inkling or sort of his political strategy was to rely on the conservative and religious sectors of society. And this is one of the reasons that because Because as I was saying before, many people in Iran, especially young women in Iran, have been taking off or are barely veiling anymore in general. And they saw that as an issue that was like a critique of their core values. And so that's one of the reasons that he really begins to hone in on hijab as a big issue. But they thought that they could, they had the same amount of power that they used to have uh, probably a decade or two ago. And now they're up against a new generation that doesn't want to take it from them anymore. And and they're saying enough and we're not going to comply any longer. And so this is where you see a lot of this tension happening now.
How significant do you think is the issue of education and participation in the labour market on the part of women? Because there seems to be this huge divergence there where over 60% of university places in the country are occupied by women, but in the workplace, women are hugely underrepresented. Yes, this plays a really big role. So as you're mentioning, over 60% of university graduates are women, over 70% of STEM graduates in Iran are women. So women are highly educated in the country. Their workforce participation was increasing. However, the sanctions, especially the maximum pressure sanctions, all of the research is showing that those sanctions have affected the most vulnerable in the population, first and foremost. And what that means is it's infected women's participation in employment extremely negatively. So this is playing a really big role here. Plus the fact that people People don't necessarily see the economy getting better. The sanctions are continuing. They haven't come off. So that's playing a big role in this. Another factor that's playing a role in this is, especially among the, gen, you know, what we call here the Gen Z, who are at the forefront of this protest movement in Iran, is an overall feeling of those who are in their 80s continue to hold on to power and not share it at all. And they're driving the country and the decisions that they're making towards a much more militaristic and militarized line. And that's not what the population wants to go for. So all of these are playing a factor. And the frustration of women in the workforce, as well as just not seeing opportunities for them moving forward and having the conservative elements of society gain power again and attempt to, as their first action, just like conservative forces all around the world do, right? Their their first line of action is to restrict the rights of women and those who are queer. That's happened in Iran since the beginning of the 1979 revolution. Daisy comes into power. This is what he's attempting to do again. But people have had enough of it. And so they're saying, you do not have the right to continue to restrict us. And we no longer deem that legitimate. And you're also not delivering on bettering the economy, on giving us more opportunities, which is what Raisi and those around him have been campaigning for for the past few years. You mentioned the regime's turn towards the East and greater reliance on China and Russia. I'm sure it's not a major factor, perhaps, but but do you think that there is some importance to Russia's failures in Ukraine, which perhaps makes that turn towards Russia and and China seem like less of a good bet than it did perhaps uh, six months or a year ago? Yeah. So, you know, one of the central slogans of the 1979 revolution was neither East nor West. And that has been sort of a policy. And that meant neither the United States nor the Soviet Union at the time. And that's been a policy that the Islamic Republic, in many ways, had continued for many years throughout these past uh, four decades. Also, Russia, you know, Russia's a neighbor of Iran's, and it has had a really fraught and at times negative history from the Iranian perspective in Iranian affairs. So it's not like it's a power that has a lot of goodwill towards it from the population. People understood when, especially during the Trump era, when those sanctions were becoming harsher and harsher and and the Trump administration seemed only hell-bent on regime change at any cost, there was more of an understanding among among some sectors of society about the logic that the state was uh, articulating about the need to turn towards Russia and the East. However, it hasn't been a narrative that has taken on 
on a broader level in society. So on a broader level in society, people are still very hesitant towards Russia. People are still really hesitant towards and also towards, you know, places like China because of the way that surveillance technology is used in places like China because of the way that China has restricted the internet. Is China's repression of its own Muslim minority a factor as well in that? Not necessarily, but China creating an intranet system because Iranians, you know, as authoritarian as the Islamic Republic is, this is a society that rose up from the ground level up in a popular revolution in 1979. The Islamic Republic came out of the 79 revolution, but it has been really difficult for the Islamic Republic to demobilize the population. You know, when you have a when there's a massive revolution like that that takes place from the ground up, it's not it's not a vanguard-led revolution. This was a really a ground-up revolution in 1979. It's really difficult to then demobilize that population and to say, okay, we have all of your concerns covered now. You guys can all go home. They were not able to do that. And so there have been different moments in time throughout these past 40 years. And that's why protests are very common in Iran, because the population is very engaged in questions of politics and society. And so despite the authoritarian nature of the Islamic Republic, the internet has been a really key issue in Iran and it, and it has had a lot of users. So back in the day of, of the time of blogging, for example, if we can remember those days, and I sometimes really miss those days now, back in the time of blogging where you know we could express our ideas more than 100 and whatever, 48 characters or whatever we have now, Persian was the third most used language on the internet. Which is crazy because, you know, population-wise, it's there are lots of other countries that have much higher populations for language use on the internet. But that just goes to show how incredibly widespread the internet was in Iran. The 2009 Green Movement that we had in, again, 2009, that was the first hashtag movement we have on a global scale. So it's the first movement that utilizes a hashtag as an organizing tool. It was the hashtag Iran election. That fundamentally changed the way we all use internet globally. So the internet has been really key for the population in Iran, especially as the state is authoritarian. So today, as Iran is becoming closer to China, it has been developing and trying to develop an intranet system like China has and to create a closed internet system that's not connected to the world. This is something that most Iranians do not want at all, right? And, and those are the things that they see on a population level, on a societal level, about these connections to China and Russia because they have been trying to hold their state accountable in various ways and they understand that their connection to one another and their connection to ideas and people outside of Iran matter and so as the state is now trying to close off that connection this is what they see the connection with Russia and China will give them rather than a further opening. The Green Movement of 2009, which came into being in response to the contested election, was very much outside of Iran, I think, characterised as a middle class movement. How fair do you think that was? And what's your sense of the class composition of, of the current movement, which some have suggested has a, has a broader base? Yeah, so the Green Movement, you're right, it's, it's, it tends to be talked about as a middle class movement. And that's partially because much of it was led by and, and had sort of an organizational structure around the electoral campaigns of the two candidates who thought that there had been cheating during that election, Mir Hossein Musabi and Mehdi Karoubi. So 
part of it is that, first of all, there was an infrastructure to that protest and that uprising that was around the electoral politics. Many of the folks who were involved in those were from the student movements, from different women's movements, especially in the urban center. So that's one of the reasons that it sort of took on that identity as a middle-class uprising. Although when you look more closely, there were uprisings that happened in different parts of the country during that time that actually also came from different classes. But nonetheless, the sort of brain trust of it was very much a middle-class movement. In the years since, uh, especially as the economic situation has gotten worse, you've seen more working-class uprisings in Iran and protests. You've seen, uh, we have a very, very organized teacher teachers union protests that have been happening, labor rights and, and, and workers protests that have been happening, pensioners protests that have been happening. So again, from various sectors of society, but including the working class, have been protesting for a long time since the 2009 election. In this current uprising that we have, you see a combination of various sectors of society coming out including in parts of the country that were not as represented in the 2009 uprisings. So that is part of what makes this different. Plus the economic component of it is that you now have under these sanctions, you have a depleted middle class and you have more and more people being driven into poverty. So you also have folks who used to be a part of the middle class who definitely are not part of the middle class anymore, who are see that diminished sort of, or or see a much darker future ahead of them, they are very much a part of this protest movement as well. So you, it is broader scale, but also society today looks very different than in, in 2009, where at that time, the economy was experiencing, you know, moments of high growth for many years, actually. Today, you're, you're, you're in a very different uh, sort of societal reality than then. We've seen reports that some small business owners and, and merchants have heeded the call of the protesters to go on strike, which is especially striking given that they've traditionally been described as uh, you know, stalwart uh, supporters of the regime. How significant and widespread do you think that is? And, and, and does that reflect that general narrowing of the regime's social base? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really important to understand is that everyone across society has had some kind of interactions with the morality police. And it doesn't really even matter whether you come from a traditional sector of society or your parents are religious or not religious. So first of all, this issue that sort of sprung out because of Amini's death at the hands of the morality police or in the custody of the morality police is something that cuts across ideological divides in the country, as well as class divides in the country, as well as ethnic divides in the country. And so a lot of people have their daughters or their mothers or their loved ones or their cousins or their sisters or whoever have had some kind of experience with the morality police. So that makes it so that actually what I'm seeing a lot of is a lot of critique, even within religious and conservative ends of the society, about what has happened and about the response of the state towards these protesters, especially the young girls. So that is really significant because this is an issue that cuts across all of these various divides that the state has been able to rely upon to not have solidarity take place between these, right? Again, I think it's really important to note that because the Islamic Republic came out of the 1979 revolution and the folks who are now in the lead of it, they were revolutionaries at the time of the revolution and understood or were at least in a part of 
how solidarity and organization needs to take place to upend a, a political system and have another one come into place. And so what the Islamic Republic has been quite efficient at, unfortunately, over all of these years, is breaking bonds of solidarity between different parts of the population who have been trying to push for change within Iran. So what you have today is, yes, you see some shop owners, you see, especially in some areas of the country, especially the Kurdish areas of the country going on strike. You have, you've had some inklings of some freelance workers in the oil sector wanting to go on strike or, or having gone on strike. At this stage that I'm talking to you right now, we still haven't seen the other movements that I spoke about, the labor movement, the teachers movement, the pensioners movement, which are very organized movements. We haven't seen them yet come into solidarity with this and stage broader strikes. That is something that's being called for. And we have to see if the movement gets to that stage or not. And if those ties are are able to form or they're not. So if that happens, then this situation becomes even more dynamic in many ways for the state. But these are things that, you know, on a day-to-day basis are changing. And on a day-to-day basis, there are attempts to broaden this movement. At the same time, though, they're up against a state that is becoming more and more and more repressive on a daily basis against the street protests. And that's why I think you know, the, the state will continue to crack down very violently because that's what the state has shown us that it does, especially uh, in, in the past 12 years of, of different forms of uprisings that have happened in Iran. But what you have that's different today than any of the previous protest movements actually of the past 40 years in Iran is that now you have an everyday symbol of resistance that is extremely visible. And that's the veil. And that's unveiling. So this is something that the previous movements in Iran have never had, that you have have something that women are forced to wear every single day when they come out. So what we're seeing now is that, okay, as the state cracks down even more violently, you have more women coming onto the streets, either without their hijab on completely, and just making that a new social reality and a new form of protest, or you have them coming out and unveiling very performatively, like a lot of the schoolgirls are continuing to do right now. So this introduces a new form of resistance in Iran, that you haven't had in previous movements. And that is something that the state is going to, and that's one of the reasons, for example, the killing of the 16-year-old girl, Asma, that you mentioned at the beginning of, of the conversation in Ardabil. These are things where they were trying to get these kids to sing a pro-regime anthem that the state has poured so much money into. And they refused to do it. And, and also other girls were taking their hijabs off. Other girls were saying, woman, life, freedom. And these are happening in the schools now. And this is going to be a much more difficult thing for the state from their perspective to control because also it is angering mothers and fathers and families to no end that the state is willing to violently confront and even kill their children. In your recent article in Vanity Fair, you wrote that Global supporters link the uprisings in Iran with their own fights, including restrictions on reproductive rights, the curtailing of trans rights, the banning of books in schools on gender and sexuality studies, and the forceful unveiling of of women who choose to veil. That's clearly right. But at the same time, of course, the cause has also been taken up by people uh, right across the political spectrum, including people on the right and the far right and, uh, you know, centrist liberals, including you know, in the UK transphobes uh, such as J.K. Rowling. 
Many people on the left in countries like the UK and the US are, are, of course, very wary of the way that the rights of women in predominantly Muslim countries have been weaponized in the interests of Western military intervention, perhaps most notoriously in the case of the Afghan war. And we have seen the United States and other governments ramp up sanctions against Iran in response to the repression of, of protesters. Could you say something on how the protests are being reported in the US media and the extent to which you think there is a danger of the protests being co-opted by those who view the mistreatment of women in Iran as a, as a weapon for achieving geopolitical goals or as part of prosecuting their Islamophobic agenda in, in Europe and North America? Yeah, I'm really grateful for this question, actually, because I think you're touching upon something really important that's actually in some ways hindering broader solidarity moving forward. And I think it's really important for those on the progressive and left side to understand this issue a little bit deeper and more critically. So, yes, the reality is, is that the United States and other Western powers have oftentimes, as you mentioned, used women's rights in Muslim majority countries and also in non-Muslim majority countries to push a certain form of politics that scholars have written about as the need to save brown women from brown men sort of thing that we saw very, very clearly with the invasion of Afghanistan and the lead up to it being around women's rights. And then obviously, we see how that was <laughs> not sincere, to say the very least. So I understand that very well. However, what you have here in Iran and, and in Afghanistan, actually, at this very moment, because women there are also rising up against the Taliban and rising up against the restrictions that they're facing, is that there are folks outside of these countries that for their own political purposes are going to try to be opportunists and use this for furthering their own political agendas, either on a personal level. So you're going to have a lot of folks who are claiming to be leaders of this that are sitting outside of Iran. And you also have a lot of different states, whether the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, so on and so forth, especially as it comes to Iran, attempting to utilize this for their own political means. That is going to happen for every widespread social movement. And I think where we have to get smarter, is, and, and I mean this to my fellow progressives and folks on the left in the United States and, and Western Europe, we have to get more critical of understanding what the needs and demands are of people who are staging uprisings and protests in these societies. So it is the women who are saying that this state is trampling all over our rights from the most basic thing of how we come outside and how we dress to much more complicated things around issues of inheritance and custody and all of that. That is something that across the board, especially for progressives and folks on the left, they should be able to understand and stand in solidarity with. Instead, what I'm seeing actually is quite the opposite, is that they're saying, well, this is something that the United States and Israel want to happen in Iran, and therefore they're, they're that line that you know Biden comes out and says the other day that I went to the Middle East actually to talk to them about Iran and not about oil. They're trying to pivot this to be to their own advantage. We have to understand that those are games that happen on the political level. And then there's also something that is happening on a movement level. And we have to be able to understand both critically, but that doesn't mean that we collapse them into one thing. Okay. So how do I see this taking on in, in U.S. media? Actually, and when I wrote that article in Vanity Fair, that was way before 
uh, Western press was really covering this protest movement. For the first two weeks of this, there was very little coverage in, in mainstream media in the West. And actually what made this movement go viral on an international global scale was what I wrote about in that piece, which was a lot of women and young people around the world that were spreading this hashtag and spreading what was happening in Iran because they saw what was what women in Iran were fighting against as also their own fight against conservative forces, against forces that first and foremost come and put uh, restrictions on women's bodies and queer bodies as a first step to then wider repressive policies. And we see that from where I'm sitting in the United States to many other places around the world. As this protest movement has continued, and as different contingencies in the Iranian diaspora who are looking for particular kinds of, let's say, opportunities or advantages for themselves are also utilizing this, as well as other pressure and lobbying groups. We have to be able to be critical enough. I don't understand why we can't, like, hold these two things in our head at the same time. Like, what I find so frustrating about progressive and left circles in the West is why we have to forego one for the other. So we can be critical of of the narrative that is coming out of the U.S. administration around women's rights and around questions of Iran, when at the same time they're allies of all these other countries in the world that are equally repressive. We can be critical of that while not foregoing the demands of women and people in Iran on the streets, which are saying that this is a highly repressive system that we are fighting against. You know, we're smart people. We can hold those two things in our mind at the same time. And actually, when we do that, we start to become more relevant because actually the conversation around the world, especially in the global South, is that Western progressives and leftists are useless because they end up not coming to understand the causes that we are fighting for because all they can see is, oh, the U.S. government said this or, oh, the U.K. government said this, therefore we have to be against that. We can do both at the same time. We can critique what the U.S. government and and Western powers and folks who are transphobic and folks who are misogynistic, because right now there are so many of them, which I'm watching in in disbelief, that are coming out in support of this movement, because I know they're, you know, you you know, just as you said, like J.K. Rowling, which is like, okay, we don't necessarily, your solidarity is a very particular form of solidarity. Like, why don't you go work on, on your issues that you need to in your own society? But we should not let them take over that narrative. We can be more critical about what is going on and not cede that ground to the conservative forces in in our societies or to the forces in our societies that are opportunistic. I don't understand why, as progressives and as leftists, we then put our hands up and say, oh, there they, they, they took that narrative away, therefore we cede that ground to them. Why are we doing that? The protest movement has very much been characterised as being leaderless and there's conflicting views on whether that's an asset for the movement or or whether that's somewhat debilitating. The Financial Times recently reported the comments of a regime insider who was dismissive of the threat posed by the protests and he was quoted as saying that the protesters are not from a political party, they don't have a leader, they are not ideologically motivated to die for their causes, Iran's opposition overseas is no threat, Can they all get together and have one charismatic leader like Imam Khomeini to take out millions of supporters onto the street? No. 
Do you think that dismissiveness regarding the protests on the basis that they lack leaders is warranted? And do you see it as a, as a real weakness? On the ground at this stage, I don't see it as a weakness. And part of that is because there have been leaders of previous movements in Iran in these past 40 years, and they've been imprisoned, killed, or sent into exile. And so actually part of this, one of the strengths at this current stage, okay, because we have to think about movements in different stages, but at this current stage, the leaderless formation of this is actually, I think, a strength because otherwise and folks on the ground know this, is that as soon as leadership becomes apparent, the state goes after it and cuts it down. And so they're being very insistent on this being dynamic and leaderless at this point. Now, if this is going to have longer-term consequences that are political in nature, will it have to create some kind of organizational structure? Now, whether that means one leader or not, I think organizational structure is potential is different than having a leadership per se. But will it need to have organizational structure moving forward? Yes, in order to create political change. The question about the diaspora, and actually just these past few days, there's been a lot of infighting within the diaspora. So that sort of proves the point of, of what that person was quoted as saying. And, you know, it's important to note that in the lead up to the 79 revolution, there was a lot of different groups, but there was a lot of organization in these groups. And a lot of, even if they didn't agree with one another, they worked together towards their common goal of overthrowing the Shah. We don't see that right now at least in this stage, happening uh, in the diaspora. But also, I think it's really important to note that the conversation in Iran and the movement in Iran and the feminist crux of it is light years ahead of diaspora politics. Light years ahead. And so... I'm not necessarily looking so much at the diaspora community. I'm looking at the diaspora community for like what it's parroting and where the money is flowing in order to understand your previous question, you know, in order to understand the the politics at stake of foreign governments and the opportunism at stake of certain figures. But as far as like, the visions for where this movement goes or the visions for the future that they want to build, whether they get there or not, because we can never tell. We, we don't have a crystal ball in front of us. But for that, I look in Iran. And that's where that conversation is happening. And that's where those ideas are coming out of. And at this stage, especially for the folks who are on the streets, and especially for the folks who are articulating what this means, what they are talking about is a much more transformational, deeper process that is taking place. Because one of the things that it's getting talked about a lot in Iran right now is that the morality police is not always just at the hands of the state, but we have morality polices in our homes as well, who are our fathers or our mothers. So this is about a much deeper as well, transformation that is underway in society that, again, I think is really important to note. It's not just women who are wanting to take off their veils, but I'm seeing this being articulated in conservative and religious circles as well among women there. And what they're articulating is, as we are working towards moving beyond and getting rid of the Islamic Republic and trying to create a different political formation, we need to do it in a way that is pluralistic, that is community-based, that continues to forefront women at the helm of this. So that is something that those things take time to build. But what I see in Iran is, is a very clear idea of the steps that need to be taken to build those. And again, they're keeping it leaderless 
because in this highly repressive environment in Iran, you show leadership or you show structure, and that is when the repression becomes even more violent on the movement. What's your sense of how much of a role the historical memory of the regime of the of the Shah that was overthrown in the in the Iranian Revolution plays? Because obviously that regime itself enforced its own dress codes, enforced uh, Western dress, and so in in the initial revolutionary period, the adoption of, of traditional dress was was treated as very much an anti-imperialist position, and, and clearly the regime continues to uh, describe it as such. How much traction does that does that still have, and how how much influence? Is there over the whole discussion of the uh, the previous regime? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing that I think is important to note for people who don't follow Iran closely is that there is a huge media apparatus outside of the country that broadcasts over two dozen channels in Persian on a 24-hour basis into the country, from anywhere from BBC Persians service to Voice of America to a new outlet, relatively new outlet called Iran International, which is Saudi-funded, to a bunch of different exile groups who have their own station. So there is a very, very robust Persian language media station outside of the country or Persian language media environment outside of the country. And that's in addition to everything that's happening on social media and on the web. Right. And so what you have is a situation in which, especially when the state shuts down the internet, people are turning on their satellite TV stations, and this is where they're getting their news from. Now, some of these stations, a lot of them have different political sort of leanings. Some of them are monarchist in leaning, meaning that they they want sort of the son of the former Shah to come back and all of that. Okay, so I'm saying this background in order to say that some of that narrative that you heard in Iran about like the, we wish we didn't do the revolution, and we wish we still had the Shah, or the Shah's son needs to come back. A lot of that is being informed by these media houses, especially as they like rebroadcast certain films of that era or make documentaries of certain social freedoms of that era from that from the perspective of those who are pro-monarchy, right? But in this current uprising, we have not heard any chance in favor of bringing the monarchy back. Actually, some of the chance we're hearing is neither Supreme Leader nor the Shah right? People on the streets are, they're moving past all of this. And actually, because this is a movement that has a feminist slogan at its core, and that the folks who are articulating what this movement is about and who continue to go out onto the streets are women and young girls, they're basically saying that what came before and what exists now is so authoritarian and so patriarchal. That's not what we want for the future. Right. So in many ways, all of these discussions, and that's why I'm saying that the conversations and the discussions and the slogans in Iran are light years ahead of the diaspora, is because the diaspora conversations have stuck, have been stuck in the trauma of the past 40 years. And in Iran, the young people and the women there do not want a return to even to different forms of patriarchy as the next step. Now, whether that's going to get co-opted into the future, whether men are going to allow that, right? These are all questions that right now are sort of up in the air. But nonetheless, everything that we see articulated, everything that we're hearing, everything that we're seeing on the ground there is an attempt to move the conversation and the political culture way past all of those ideas that they deem to be of the past. In your writing, you've emphasised that the protests have frequently been joyful as, as, as well as angry. 
And in your Vanity Fair article, you wrote that current protests have been accentuated by women taking off their headscarves and dancing publicly, illegal for women in Iran, while throwing the fabric into bonfires. They have continuously enacted joy, a radical act for a society marred by increasing repression. Could you talk a, a bit more about this aspect of the protest and, and to what extent you think that joyfulness is, is novel or not in the, in the history of protest in Iran? Yeah, so the dancing, especially that we saw in the first few weeks, but also we continue to see in some parts now, the the playing of, of joyful music, the creation of new chants that are, that are very musical, this is what I attribute to the feminist nature of this. And it's it's about a, instead of a reliance on rage only to fight back, which is what we've seen in previous movements in Iran, the insistence of this movement on A, different forms of civil disobedience, including taking the veil off, but B, enacting joy. So you have videos popping up of, of women sitting without their hijab, listening to another woman play uh, music on her violin and on the streets, or you have them dancing around on the metro, all of them with their hijabs off. And that goes again to the slogan of women life freedom. It's about the life part. And it's about the freedom part of that slogan, right? Because when you have joy, which all of us as human beings have, and whether we express it or not, but when you express that joy, you are also expressing a certain kind of freedom that cannot be taken away from you. And this is a part of a much deeper understanding of feminist politics worldwide that we're seeing in action in Iran, which is that patriarchal forms of domination, which is what we have anywhere that we look around the world, unfortunately, they attempt to control women's bodies. And in an attempt to control women's bodies and to control women, they're also attempting to take away the joy and to make them compliant with the social order at hand. Enacting joy, and this is not like the black movement in the United States is does this a lot as well. Like enacting joy is a form of saying to the powers that be that you cannot repress me any longer because the joy and the freedom that I have is mine. It, it's our communities. That's not something that you can take away. This is something that is novel in post-revolutionary movements in Iran. And this is something that I think very much is because of the feminist nature of this uprising. And this is, again, something that I think made this uprising go viral way before what we're hearing in these last couple of weeks coming out of mainstream media or even, uh, you know, politics in different Western countries was this connection that women and activists around the world were seeing with the, I refuse to comply any longer and I am a free human being. And the way that I'm going to express that I'm a free human being is through the joy I have that you can no longer control or take away from me. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.